Well, it is hard to believe that Thanksgiving is past, and Christmas is three weeks from today. I mean, do you realize this? Are you making plans? Are you trying to knock out your to-do list to prepare for Christmas? I mean, you're, we're seeing evidences of this, right? Uh, the temperatures are dropping, lights are going up, stores are being decorated, and perhaps, maybe just maybe, people are starting to ask you, hey, what do you want for Christmas? It's that time of year. And so let me ask you, what do you love about Christmas? What makes Christmas special to you? Is it the madness of the holiday seasonal shopping? Um, by, by the way, did we have anyone that kind of lost sleep in sanity and went to Black Friday shopping? Anyone? You can just raise your hand a little bit. A few crazy people out there, maybe really smart too to get the good deals. Um, that's good. Uh, maybe you love putting up the Christmas tree and decorating your home. Uh, perhaps you love to go to Christmas parties. And at this point, you might be saying, well, Tanner, no one's invited me to a party yet. Um, I must not be that special. What's wrong with it? Well, let me say, we think you're special, and we would love for you to come to our Christmas party this Friday night, December 9th, here, right here at Spring Step. Not hard to find. You already know where it is. All right, so we're going to have a great time. Live band, uh, fruitcake competition, like, yeah. Um, so make one, bake one, buy one. It doesn't matter. Just come and have a good time. We'll have great food, and we will, yeah, have a great time. So uh, if, it's, if it's parties, if it's whatever, you name it. I mean, there is so many things about Christmas that we all probably love to one degree or another. But I would submit to you this morning that Christmas is more than ornaments and lights and eggnog and even gifts. Christmas is about the gift, the gift of God's Son to us that we might know and relate to this great God who made us. And so we, this Christmas season, want to celebrate the coming of Christ, but we don't just want to celebrate the coming of Christ. We really want to understand why he came. And this morning, I want you to think about this. Jesus came to give the light of hope to all who would receive him. Jesus came to give the light of hope to all who would receive him. And over the next three weeks, we're going to spend time in three different Old Testament passages that point to the coming of Christ. Who ex they explain who he is, why he is such a great gift. And then on Christmas Day, if you're still here, we're going to look at a passage out of the New Testament that tells of his birth and how he came to save us from our sin. And so, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. And if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be on page 583 of the Bibles that we provided for you. Now, before we jump into our text, I just want to kind of set the context for you here. Isaiah was a prophet of God, which means he was a spokesperson, a spokesman for God, and he was to declare exactly what God wanted him to speak. 
which is, by the way, the job of any decent preacher and what we try to do on Sunday mornings. And so Isaiah was speaking to a rebellious, disobedient people who weren't gathering on Sunday singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They were treating God's holiness with contempt and playing games with the holy God who had called them to be his people. And so Isaiah and these other prophets are a voice to say, hey, come back. Turn back to God. Live your life for him. And Isaiah is going to speak of this judgment that is coming on the people of God. God was going to send his people, even because he loved them so much, to grab their attention. He was going to send them into exile, into the land of Babylon. But even in the midst of judgment, there is grace and hope. There is one who would come, a deliverer, a savior, who would bring God's people back into that right relationship with him. And that is what Isaiah 9 is going to unpack for us this morning. In Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, we have shining the light of God with fierce intensity. And we find why God is so amazing in all that Christ brings to us. I think you're going to find why Christmas is so special, this gift that God gives. And so I want to unpack this text by giving you three truths this morning to ponder about why Christmas is so special. The first one is this. Jesus came to give us the light of his joy. Jesus came to give us the light of his joy. Look in Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 3. Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so as we read these verses, you might say, hey, you know, we are in the Old Testament here, Tanner. This was written like 700 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. And so how can we be right here for a sermon on Christmas? How does that work out? And what we find is in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew in Matthew chapter 4, quotes Isaiah 9, and he's saying, this is about Jesus. Jesus begins his public ministry where? In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee. And what Isaiah is essentially doing is this. He's saying, look, you saw, you should have seen the preview to the movie. 
in Isaiah 9. And you're about to see the whole thing right now in the life and ministry of Jesus. He, he's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the deliverer. He is the Savior. And as we read, did you notice that Isaiah is speaking as if these events have already happened? Do you notice that? It is the perfect tense. Some scholars call it the prophetic perfect. In other words, Isaiah is foretelling these future events that will happen in Israel. And here's a little handle to understand what's going on here, and this is helpful for reading the Bible. What happens is this. In Christ's first coming, we have the initial fulfillment of all that we're about to read here. In Christ's second coming, which we anticipate still today, we will have the final and perfect fulfillment of all that we read here about this messianic king. And so I hope that that will give you some handles on how to understand this passage. So we again ask ourselves, what has the coming of Christ brought to God's people? And Christ's coming turns the darkness of gloom into the light of joy. Look again at verse 1. It says that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. So we're going to understand here that Isaiah has just told them in chapter 8 that the Assyrians are going to invade and they're going to drive you out of the land. They're going to humiliate you. And God's people would be treated with scorn and contempt. But we have this transition in verse 1, this change that God will not forsake his people. And this really comes to life in verse 2, where he says, the people who walked in darkness, don't miss the metaphor. This metaphor drives the whole passage. A people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. A people who lived in a land of deep darkness. On them has light shined. So this metaphor of darkness is a picture of despair. It's a picture of, of, of anguish and gloom. It is the consequences of their rebellion against God. This is not just physical happening around them, but this is a picture of what's gone on in their hearts, that they have moved away from God. But God, in his amazing grace, sends light, gives light. Don't miss this. What does it say? It says, on them has light shined. The assumption is is that there is not light coming from within. It has to come from without. This is a picture of divine grace. God has to shine his light on us if we are to know him. And he does. He does it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus will do is he will take us from the tired, frustrating experiences the discouraging experience of life apart from God, and he will bring us to a place of joy and life. Four times in verse three, what does it say? 
You, you have increased this joy. They rejoice as with joy, as they are glad. This passage is about joy in God, joy before God. He is the one who gives us joy in life. Maybe you are new to Christianity, or maybe your experience with God right now is somewhat maybe tired or stale, and you would not be able to kind of identify with this language here. God sent Jesus to give us joy. I mean, I know how busy we all are around here, right? The busyness of life just kind of sucks the joy right out of us. But Christianity is not a dull religion. Christianity is a life-giving relationship with the God who gives us joy. So are you experiencing joy on a daily basis? Or is life more of a daily drudgery for you? I want to tell you, Jesus came to give us joy. He came to, give, came to give us the light of his joy. We see this in a couple of verses in the Gospel of John. In John 8, verse 12, what does Jesus say? Surely having Isaiah 9 ringing in the back of his mind, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when we see this picture of light in the Bible, it is pointing to hope and pointing to life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he goes on when he's with his disciples shortly before he's about to go to the cross and die on the cross for the sin of the world. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so if you are missing joy in your day-to-day -day life, let me invite you to receive Christ. If it's the first time, receive Jesus. If it's the thousandth time, the ten thousandth time, receive Jesus again and again and again. He came to bring and give the light of God's joy. Number two, Jesus also came to give us the light of God's peace. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Look in verse 4. And notice the structure here, all right? The Bible is a literary book, all right? And the, 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 the light of joy thing is going to drive the whole passage, but he's going to explain with these three fours in verse 4, 5, and 6, building on how this joy is going to come to fruition. So he begins in verse 4, and he says, For the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of, the, boot of tramping, warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the picture here is that the people of Israel had this unbearable weight on their back from all of the oppression around them. Not only physical oppression from their enemies, but even this spiritual oppression that weighs our hearts down apart from knowing God. And it says here at the end of verse four, he says, you have broken them. I mean, that's 
comprehensive here. You have broken the yoke, broken the staff, broken the rod as on the day of Midian. And so let me just do a little short Bible lesson here. What on earth is Isaiah referring to when he says, as on the day of Midian? Well, after Moses attempted to lead the Israelites into the promised land, and because of his sin and the consequences of his sin, God raised up one after him, Joshua, to take the Israelites into the promised land. They then were ruled by these series of judges. And the word judges is, is a word that means deliverance, a savior. Because Israel would, as the end of the book says, just do what was right in their own eyes. It was a way of saying they were living life apart from God's will for their life, and they were just doing whatever it was that pleased them. And so God would then uh, send some consequences then to draw his people back, but he would have to raise up this deliverer every time to bring the people out of the oppression that they were in from their enemies. And maybe you've heard of this judge named Gideon. Gideon was less than an average dude, all right? And an angel comes to him one night. He says, Gideon, you are going to deliver God's people. And Gideon says, hold up, not me. I am from the least respected tribe in Israel. And in my father's house, I am the least. Surely you wouldn't use me. I am not the man for the job. But God says, no, I'm going to use you. I will be with you. And so the people of Israel come together under Gideon's leadership, 32,000. And God says, no, that's way too many. Uh, I can't win this victory with that many people because if that many people go into battle, you might assume that you have get, won the victory for yourselves and that I did not give it to you. And so they get the number down to 10,000. And Gideon says, hey, God, is that enough? And God says, no, that's still way too many. And they keep whittling it down until there are 300 men to face a giant army. And the story is somewhat amazing. They grab these jars and these trumpets and they are camped not far from the enemy. And they shatter the jars with a loud crash and shout out, blow the trumpets. And with all the ruckus, the Midianites basically freak out and God turns them in on their self, and he sets his people free. Now, think about this. Isaiah is saying the Messiah will be like that. In other words, the Messiah will come, as we're about to see in verse 6, in the most unexpected way, born as a baby. But not just born as a baby in a manger, but he would die on a wooden cross, so unexpected, and deliver God's people from their oppression, that they might have life and peace in him. And think about this, as I learned from one of my old professors, just as God worked this victory and to the Midianites by them turning on themselves. So Jesus defeats Satan by Satan essentially turning in on himself. Why? Because Satan comes to bring death. He comes to steal life. And so through the instrument of death, he 
was defeated through Jesus. God comes to give us the light of his peace. He saves us through the least expected means so that he might receive maximum glory. And then in verse 5, we see that, that, it, that it is even escalated because it says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as for fuel for the fire. So Christ coming turns the darkness of oppression into the light of peace. He will bring cosmic peace and he brings personal peace. I mean, the, the, the most rabid cultural pacifist should get excited about this picture of Jesus. I don't know if they realize it about Jesus or not, but, but is this not someone that has, you know, the bumper stickers lined across their car that say something like, make crafts, not war? Have you seen that one? make crafts, not or, or how about, uh, I will not tread on you, or here's maybe an even clever one, Tolstoy is my homeboy. Have you seen these pacifist slogan bumper stickers? See, Jesus will one day end all war. He will bring ultimate peace. And everything that we see around us, 24 dead in Syria yesterday, scandals at Penn State and Syracuse, a man shot and killed in Charlestown on Tuesday, a woman in Lowell pleading guilty to abusing her children. All of these things will be done away with in Christ. He will have the final word on all of our, our oppression. And don't you long for this. We all long for this day when Christ will right every wrong and bring in his coming kingdom. So I hope that you know the peace of Christ. More importantly, even more importantly than all wars ceasing is that each human soul would know peace with God. And that's why Christ came. Do you know the peace of God? Do you have peace with God? Can you say, I mean, I have a relationship with God because of who Jesus is and what he has done for me. That I've done nothing to earn God's love and grace, but God has extended his love to me in spite of my great sin. This can be yours today through Jesus. So Jesus came to give us the light of joy. He came to give us the light of peace. And finally, Jesus came to give us the light of his leadership. We see this in verses 6 and 7. It says, to start verse 6, it says, For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so check this out. Do you see the structure of the passage? Do you see how Isaiah is arguing here? He's saying those who are in darkness, they're gonna see this great light. And what is this light gonna look like? How are we gonna know that it's here? How is this light gonna be brought to us? Well, all oppression will cease and all war will cease. And how is this gonna happen? Because a child is born to us. There is the beautiful mingling of humanity and divinity in Christ. Fully God, fully man. Jesus is the God-man, and it is pointed to right here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, a child is born, emphasizing the humanity of Christ. To us, a son is given, emphasizing the deity of Christ. And then as we get into all these titles of Christ, they both ring of his humanity and his deity, as we'll see in just a few moments. And so I want you to consider how Jesus, the God-man, is the leader of the people of God. It says that the government will be on his shoulder. In other words, he will bear the weight of responsibility to lead the people of God. And do you realize that we all need leadership in life? I mean, we're so tempted, right? It's our bent to say, hey, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. I have it all together here. I'm all set. When the reality is we don't have it all together. We have many, many weaknesses. We're not all set. I'm reminded of this again this week. Many of you know that I coach the freshman boys basketball team at Medford High School. And we just had four days of tryouts, two official practices of spent six days times about three hours with these 14 and 15 year old boys. And they are really putting their best forward. They're really working hard. But as, as, as excited and eager as they are to play basketball, I must tell you, we're not quite ready to play basketball yet. I mean, I won't demonstrate too much for you here today, but I, at the beginning of practice, I, I say, get down in a defensive stance. Okay, if you've ever seen a basketball game, you kind of know what it's supposed to look like. I had some of my guys bent over like this. I'm like, guys, you know, like, I'm not asking you to imitate your grandma, okay? I'm like, get down in a defensive stance. We're still working on being able to hit a left-handed layup, some of them. And, and so, needless to say, they need instruction. They need counsel. They need correction. They need encouragement. They need a coach. They need to be led. And I think we will be actually pretty good this year. All right? So if you live in the surrounding communities, Malden, Everett, Cambridge, Somerville, you tell them the Medford Mustangs, we mean business this year. All right? So I realize this is not a halftime speech. It's a, it's a sermon. So we won't run any suicides after the service. Um, but to bring it back to the text, spiritually speaking, we all need a leader. We need to be led. We need to live the life that God intends for us. And how are we going to do that? Well, God has provided the answer for us. 
in the person of Christ. And, and he tells us about him in verse 6. And, and what these names are, are, are essentially his character, who he is, the type of leader that Jesus is for us. What does it say? It says that he is wonderful counselor. So what do we learn about Christ? Well, he leads with wisdom. Do you need wisdom and insight in your life? Do you ever struggle with that upcoming decision or how it's all going to work out? Maybe you're struggling with, with what's coming up next or you're struggling in uh, your relationships or your parenting or your marriage or whatever the case may be. Listen, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And what does it mean? I love the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God means that God knows, Christ knows, not only the proper ends in our life, but his wisdom is how he orchestrates the means to get us to those ends. So you may not have it all figured out right now, but I'm telling you, Jesus does. And just go to him, run to him, hear his counsel. He is our wonderful counselor. He knows how to lead us with wisdom. Number two, he also leads us with strength. He's not just wise, but he is able to fulfill everything that he wills for us. The term in the Hebrew is El Gabor. This is a strong declaration of the divinity of the Messiah. Every time the word El is used in Isaiah, it is referring to God himself. So Jesus is a strong leader. He gives us what we need to live our lives for him. He also leads us with love. He is our everlasting Father and our Prince of Peace. And you might say, man, you know, it sounds like we have gone into heresy here, Isaiah, because there is God the Father and God the Son, and this text seems to be calling God the Son, God the Father, and it just doesn't work out too well. Well, remember, Isaiah is giving names that describe, give a picture of the character of the Messiah. It's not saying he is the father. It's saying he is like a father. He knows how to protect his people, to care for his people, to love his people. And that's good news for us. He leads us with wisdom. He leads us with strength. He leads us with love. And he leads us with justice. You may have a job with a manager or boss who doesn't treat you all that well, who just kind of has no respect for you, doesn't encourage you in any way, doesn't treat you fairly, doesn't give you what you deserve. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus doesn't operate like that. He is completely fair, completely just in all of his dealings with his people. He is a just and righteous king. He always does what is right. And then I love this last one. He leads his people forever. Jesus is the Davidic messianic king. And what it says in verse 7 really should boggle your mind. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So think about this. The kingdom of Christ is advancing like right now. 
as people come to him and come to know him and come to worship him and live as, as believers in Christ, come to grow in him and live their life more for his glory. The kingdom is expanding even now. But then you say, well, how does that work out in eternity? If it's forever, then surely it would continue into eternity. And I'm, I'm here to say it absolutely does. God is infinite. Christ is infinite. And we will experience more and more and more of all the blessings that he gives for eternity. Joy will increase forever. Peace will increase forever. Our delight and love for God will continually increase. I mean, can you handle that? Does that like... It's amazing. This is the kind of king Jesus is. Wouldn't you want to live under his reign? Think about the great civilizations that we've seen in world history, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the dynasties of the Far East, even the English, the Americans, us. Jesus will bring in the government that we really need and that we all long for. And how does this happen? Well, how does the passage end? It says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Think about this. God has an unshakable resolve and passion to accomplish all the details of his will down to the very details of our individual lives. He has a plan, and it is good, and he wants to work it out in each of our lives. And so that's where I want to end our time this morning is with the details of our lives, the details of your life. If this is the gift, that God has sent to us in the person of his son. Have you received the gift? Do you know the joy of Christ? Do you know the peace of Christ? Do you know what it means to live under his leadership? You see, we're calling this series the gift, receiving and giving the gift of Christmas. And we know, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. But let me tell you, you can never give that which you have not received yourself. So if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity and you're, you're just trying to learn what this whole Jesus thing is about, I am here to invite you to receive him. It's a gift that God gives. A gift can be accepted or rejected, and you have to receive it. This gift that costs you nothing. It's the gift of Christ's perfect life, his cruel substitutionary death for us on the cross, that if we would look to him and believe in him, which there's a lot entailed in that word believe because the gift is free, but it's also costly. It will cost us our lives, giving it back to him in worship. It's the best possible deal that any of us could receive. And so if you're here this morning and you need to re receive this gift, the gift of Christmas, the gift of eternity, then please respond today. Just say, God, I'm in. I want you. I need you. I need this gift that you extend to all people. 
If you are a believer in Christ and that deal has been settled for you, then let me encourage you to receive this gift again and again and again so that you can be filled with Christ in such a way that you go in every day of your life, you're just giving it away, dishing out joy, dishing out peace, giving these characteristics that Christ puts in his people and giving it freely to the world. So will you receive this gift of Christ and will you give it away? That's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this amazing text that points to our Savior. <clears throat> Father, we ask that your Spirit would work on our hearts in such a way that we would see our need for a leader like Jesus, the only one who can lead us out of our sin and into a beautiful relationship with you, the God who made us, the God who loves us and wants to know us in an intimate way. Father, I pray that you would work in us today what's pleasing to you and that we would leave here today this building where we meet on Sundays that we would leave here and be ready to go shine the light that we've received we pray these things in Jesus name amen